You're listening to Climate Rising, an official podcast of Harvard Business School. You have an opportunity to lead and to use your political power to advance climate policy and to advocate for your climate goals, just as you would advocate for your tax or your trade or your intellectual property or anything else. Climate needs to be a top advocacy priority for businesses across the economy, or we're, we're all gonna we'll all be sunk, literally. This is Climate Rising, a podcast from Harvard Business School, and I'm your host, Mike Toffel, a professor here at HBS. In today's episode, I talked to Victoria Mills, Managing Director at EDF Plus Biz, Environmental Defense Fund's Corporate Partnership Program. Victoria has worked on NGO and corporate collaborations for years and helped develop EDF's Climate Corps, a program that embeds graduate students in organizations to help them work on their climate goals. Recently, Victoria shifted her focus to work with companies advocating directly for more stringent climate policy as companies increasingly recognize how climate change poses risks to their business. Just a quick note, this episode was recorded before the passage of the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. Here's my interview with Victoria Mills of Environmental Defense Fund. Victoria, thank you so much for joining us here on Climate Rising. You're welcome, Mike. I'm delighted to be here. I wonder if we can start by just asking you to describe your role at Environmental Defense Fund or EDF and how you got there. Sure. I'm a managing director on the EDF Plus business team at Environmental Defense Fund. I've been working for EDF since 1997, so coming up on my 25th anniversary here. Done a bunch of things on the EDF Plus business team uh, since I joined EDF. But what I do now is focus on the intersection of business and public policy and working with companies to advance the policies they need to achieve their environmental goals and that we need to meet our national and global emission targets. Can you help us set the stage of what does environmental defense do? EDF has been around since 1967, and we started as a scrappy group of scientists and a lawyer on Long Island concerned about the impacts of chemicals, and especially pesticides, on the local osprey population. And that led to the first nationwide ban on DDT. And through that work and that uh, historic project, Environmental Defense Fund was born. And our initial, our first motto was sue the bastards because we had a focus on using litigation uh, as a tool to improve environmental outcomes. The power of that tool was proven through that first GDT ban. As our work expanded and we began focusing on a broader range of environmental issues, our approach also became more diverse and the motto evolved to finding the ways that work. We've long had an emphasis at EDF on market-based solutions to environmental problems. Now, that doesn't mean that public policy is absent from the situation. On the contrary, we need enabling public policies that make the market work to deliver better environmental outcomes and better outcomes for people. But one of the aspects that was an early emphasis of EDF was working with corporations. Now, if I recall some of the earlier work from environmental defense with corporations included things like working with McDonald's on their packaging or working with some companies on their paper supply chain. That was in the 90s, perhaps? That's right. And and that was a sort of the creation of what became the EDF Plus business program. 
And that was that iconic EDF McDonald's partnership in 1990. Legend has it that Fred Krupp, our president, walked into a McDonald's with his young children and they had a meal. And after the meal, there was this pile of packaging on the table. And one of his kids said, Dad, don't you work for an environmental organization? Can you do something about that? And so he did something about that. And he wrote a letter to the president of McDonald's at the time and said, we have expertise in solid waste and environmental issues and chemicals and paper. And you have a solid waste problem. Maybe we can work together to solve that problem. And they did. And I think the, uh, the most iconic element of that was eliminating the polystyrene clamshell sandwich container that you still see in some parts of the world, but no longer in the U.S. for a long time. There was also a wholesale switch to recycled content packaging, unbleached packaging. It transformed supply chains. It influenced McDonald's competitors. There was a lot of follow-on behavior. And it had great outcomes for the environment in terms of waste reduction, reduction at the source, reduction of inputs or, and emissions for from paper and packaging manufacturing, and it saved the company money. And so we thought, why not take that model of partnering with business to achieve environmental results and scale it? And that became what is now EDF Plus Business. Interesting. And what is EDF Plus Business today? I know, again, we're going to get into the policy aspects that you work on, but what's the rest of the portfolio? We work on a variety of issues affecting companies and their supply chains. So we have a big focus on energy, agricultural and forest impacts of supply chains. So food and food production. There's also a big emphasis on chemicals and chemical safety and consumer products. Also working with companies to meet their net zero goals, which involves kind of looking holistically at the company's operations and supply chain and my work with companies on public policy. And I could share some examples, you know, in the early days since McDonald's, we worked with other companies on making improvements to their paper and packaging like UPS and FedEx. We worked then with FedEx to develop the first commercially available hybrid truck. We partnered with Walmart to reduce their supply chain emissions, which led to Project Gigaton, which now involves thousands of suppliers. We started EDF Climate Corps, which places graduate students in organizations to work on projects that cut costs and emissions. A great thing for HBS and other MBA students to look into. Those are some of the main things that we work on. So let's dig into the policy advocacy work. So this is not so much on what they're doing in their operations, but rather what they're doing on their policy advocacy side. Talk a little bit about what that landscape looks like. Who tends to be the folks in companies who are working on that? And what's the mechanisms they're using? I, I think we know that there's trade associations in this space. There's lobbyists of all sorts. How does environmental defense fit into that landscape? Let me start with what's the need and what's the problem that we're trying to solve. You know, we worked with many, many companies to make many, many environmental improvements, but we knew all along that even if you add up all those improvements and you get all the follow-on behavior in the world, it's still not going to be enough to bend the emissions curve downward at a speed and on a scale needed to meet our climate goals and avoid the worst impacts of climate change. If you look at the history of how do companies lobby on climate policy, there are some sectors that have been active 
since they got started. And, you know, oil and gas, the automotive industry, electric utilities, those are companies that EDF organizationally has always engaged with, sometimes to advance common interests in legislation or regulation, but sometimes on opposing sides, because we're trying to raise the bar environmentally, and sometimes companies in those industries resist. I think we've come a long way, and those sectors are, I think, increasingly recognizing their need to contribute to getting the world to net zero. The battles aren't eliminated, but there are, I think, fewer of them. At the same time, there's a whole vast swath of American businesses that have a powerful political voice and that create climate impacts that have not been active. And this is where EDF Plus Business realized maybe around 2015, 2016, we really needed to expand our focus. Because at the same time, you have many companies setting net zero and other climate goals and coming up with transition plans. And we started looking at those and realizing you can't just count your tons that you're reducing and think, oh, that's going to help fix the world. It might if we had a thousand years to solve the problem and everyone did exactly what you did, but it's not fast enough. And the fact is that companies need public policy to meet their enterprise level goals. Can you say a little more about that? So I understand a bunch of companies sorting their own problems in terms of reducing their own in-house emissions, that's never going to be enough. We need policy to ensure that we're doing that at scale. But say a little more about why companies would need policy engagement to make even their own targets. Say you have a goal to convert to 100% renewable energy. How are you going to do that without a modernized electric grid. That takes public investment. How are you going to do that without incentives and enabling policies for the uptake of significant amounts of clean and renewable energy? We have a lot of subsidization right now of fossil fuels and not the kind of system level incentives for renewable and clean energy that we need. So you can't get there from here without that policy intervention. A second example is, you know, lots of companies have a fleet conversion goal or even a scope three emission reduction goals that depends on their reducing emissions from transportation. Well, how are you going to achieve that goal without electrification of goods movement, specifically trucks that move the vast majority of goods in this country? For example, in the climate and clean energy provisions that are before Congress right now, there are investments in charging infrastructure that are necessary to enable that transition. There are incentives for the purchase of EVs. That's what I mean when I say companies need to advocate for policies, not just to achieve some far off climate goal that other people will benefit from, but to meet their own commitments. I see. Let's talk about some typical engagements that you're working on. Do you go out and pursue companies who you think should be engaging in policy or do they come to you or is it some of each? It's a little bit of both. And I think it's it's been more us being forward-leaning. I think we have been, through all of this work, building on the relationships that we've already established with companies through our programmatic collaborations. We start by working with the corporate sustainability or CSR departments in a company. Then we sort of expand the dialogue to, well, what are the policies that you're working on to enable you to achieve those goals? Then we have a meeting, let me bring in my colleagues from government affairs, and then we start comparing notes on that. How well 
aligned do you find the sustainability folks and the government affairs folks? Because I, I know there's lots of examples where companies that seem to be investing in a green brand and greener than average products will at the same time be lobbying against more progressive climate policies or fuel efficiency standards and things like that, which makes me wonder, are these working for the same company or because they have different <laughs> reporting lines, they have different objectives? What do you see as uh, the alignment or misalignment of those organizations? There can be a really big misalignment there. You've really hit on one of the barriers that we are running up against very often. Now, some companies, and increasingly, I think the forward-leaning ones and the smart ones have very little daylight between their government relations and their corporate sustainability departments. And they crosswalk their goals on an ongoing basis. And sometimes they even report up to the same people. But more often than not, they are separate. And sometimes they don't even talk to each other. And if you think about the history here, government relations has been around forever. And their job is basically risk minimization. What are the policies that are in play that are going to help or hurt my company? Pounce, advocate, lobby, work with the trade association. And corporate sustainability came along much later and is all about sort of optimizing the brand and, and wanting to be a leader. Sometimes you have to go up to the CEO and back down again to the other side to get the two to talk to each other. Mm. Okay, let me tell you a secret. You don't need to be in a Harvard classroom to hear the best and brightest minds in business. I'm Chris Lenane, host of Harvard Business School Online's new podcast, The Parlor Room. On each episode, I sit down with esteemed Harvard Business School professors to demystify vital business concepts in a way that's entertaining and insightful. We break down academic theory without sacrificing depth. Want to learn how to become a master negotiator? We have the perfect episode for you. Or perhaps the best way to build your personal brand. Yep, we've got that covered too. On each episode of The Parlor Room, you'll gain useful takeaways to navigate the business world from wherever you are. Hear business concepts come to life. Listen to The Parlor Room on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I wonder if you can give us some examples of some of the current or recent policy engagement work you've been doing. Sure. We have been very focused since the Biden administration came in of getting some real investment and incentives to transform the sectors that are the biggest emitting sectors, which are transportation and electricity. In the bill formerly known as Build Back Better, there's $550 billion in climate and clean energy provisions, which include tax credits for clean energy use, grid modernization, incentives for purchasing electric vehicles, investments in charging infrastructure, investments in resilience. These all build on an initial down payment that was made in the bipartisan infrastructure bill, also known as the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, which included, a, I think, a $65 billion investment in modernizing the electric grid. That's really important. But that is a down payment. And what we really need are the $550 billion investments. So 
I'll share a few examples. You know, some of what we do involves just calling up companies one-on-one and saying, who do you know? Who can you call? Do you support this? Can you let them know? And that's sort of the private, what we call shoe leather or Zoom leather lobbying that we do. There have also been companies that we've worked with on various sign-on letters and messages to Congress. For example, last October, Carrier Corporation spearheaded a letter to congressional leadership saying, we support the climate provisions in the Build Back Better Act. And they got 17 companies, major employers, and including a range of tech companies, major emitters, manufacturers, et cetera, on that letter. And that was, I think, a really important message that came at an important time. There are a whole bunch of companies now that we are working with uh, in partnership with Ceres, another terrific advocacy organization based in Boston, to recruit companies on a business letter that was published on April 26th. Another really important example, Mike, was there is a case before the Supreme Court right now called West Virginia versus EPA. And that involves what is the EPA's authority to regulate emissions from power plants? And there's a lot at stake in that case for our ability as a country to meet our climate goals and to be credible in asking other nations to lead. EDF is a party to that case, but we worked hard to make sure that businesses were aware of the case and that they knew that they had an opportunity to weigh in. 15 companies did, including Apple, Amazon, Google, Johnson Controls, Siemens, and others, basically saying, we need the strong EPA. We need a predictable regulatory environment to enable investment and growth. We can't have our regulations going back and forth with every administration. And climate change is a material risk to our business. That's a really important statement in informing the court. Because otherwise, all they would hear from are Environmental Defense Fund and other public health advocates and utilities, notably the power sector is on our side in this case, on one side and coal companies on the other. And where is American business, the vast majority that will be impacted by the ruling? So those are the kinds of things that we make happen. Great. So the example you just gave is bringing businesses that are not directly engaged in the lawsuit, for example, they're not the coal producers or not the electricity uh, utilities, but they're companies who have a a vision and a desire for a long-term stable climate. And that's so far been, as far as I can tell, a perspective that hasn't been very well represented in Washington. And so you and Ceres Bicep, the program that you mentioned, bringing those voices to the table. Is that a fair way to characterize what you're up to? I would say so. And I think the reason it's important is you got to think about who's at the table when policy decisions are made. The excuse we hear, oh, that's not in my lane. You know, I'm a telecom company. I don't weigh in on climate stuff. Well, guess what? (laughs) You cause emissions and these regulations impact you and this legislation would impact you. And you have an opportunity to lead and to use your political power to advance climate policy and to advocate for your climate goals, just as you would advocate for your tax or your trade or your intellectual property or anything else. Climate needs to be a top advocacy priority 
for businesses across the economy, or we're we're all gonna we'll all be sunk, literally. Well, and the reason they're not, I would speculate, is because in some ways these are longer term concerns, and they may impose short term costs. Even though perhaps in the long run, we're all better off. They have to fight against this instinct of, well, I can either lobby for cheaper taxes in the short term, or a more resilient infrastructure, which requires, as you're noting, hundreds of billions of dollars of investment, which we're all going to have to pay through taxes over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Right. And and this is sometimes, this is what makes me crazy as an advocate is that what you read in the news can be very one-sided. It's like, oh, the cost to comply with the SEC climate disclosure rule would be X or the cost to address climate change is some number. Well, what about the cost not to? Right. Extreme weather events cost the United States almost $750 billion over the last five years alone. So who's going to get stuck with that bill? It's you and me, it's the taxpayers. It's, you know, it's going to balloon our budget deficit. It's not healthy for the economy. It prevents growth and it, it hurts the businesses directly. And, you know, they're not immune from natural disasters and damage to their facilities from physical risks of climate change. I've never encountered a business that's not concerned about climate risk. Yeah, we really do need ways to change the dialogue. It seems to me that the do nothing approach is still often viewed as the cheaper perspective or the free perspective even. I don't think that's a tenable position anymore. All of the NGOs that have embraced what we call our AAA framework for climate leadership at Ceres and WWF and World Resources Institute and C2ES and BSR, every major NGO that works with business has said climate leadership requires policy leadership. The first day is advocate for climate policy that gets us to net zero by 2050 and halfway there by 2030. The second is align your trade associations behind the same advocacy goal. We have that problem you mentioned earlier, Mike, where a company can even be doing its own advocacy, but then the U.S. Chamber comes in and says, this is terrible, and they have a lot more money uh, and a lot more influence than that one company by itself. And then the third element is allocate your spending, whether it's on contributions to candidates or elected officials, advertising spending, lobbying spending. You can't be talking out of one side of your mouth on how much of a climate leader you are and look at these great goals and then be giving money to organizations that are working to obstruct progress on policy. Are there robust scorecards yet? that are grading the extent to which companies are adhering to this AAA framework? Because there's surely lots of scorecards on traditional ESG metrics, whether it's Sustainalytics or other types of data providers, MSCI. I know that that tends to be sort of carbon footprint oriented. I would say we have some progress to make to increase transparency and accountability for corporate lobbying in the same way that companies are transparent about their emissions disclosures and their disclosure of TCFD, I would like to see as part of every corporate sustainability report, these are the policies we need to meet our sustainability goals. Here's what we did on them last year, and here's what we're going to do to get them passed next year. 
that should just be routine. Now, there are groups that look closely at this issue of corporate lobbying. One is Influence Map. They have some excellent reports uh, where they do deep dives on asset managers, on oil and gas, on trade associations. They have terrific resources. Uh, The Center for Political Accountability is another one that looks closely at campaign contributions and other forms of lobbying. Let's bring us back toward your role in corporate advocacy, working with companies. Mm -hmm. Can you describe some lessons learned, perhaps a misstep or two that you now know you won't take again? Like, What are some of the successes and failures that make you better at doing this than you were six or seven years ago? Hmm. Well, I think one is realizing, just looking at organizations holistically. You know, we talked about how different groups within a company may have different points of view. So the need to speak to government relations and corporate sustainability and get them talking to each other and sometimes to escalate, I think the importance of really pressing companies to influence their trade associations. Because again, any individual company tends to be outgunned in advertising spending and political influence than a trade association. And then I think It's a fine balance to strike, Mike, between meeting companies where they are and raising the bar, you know, raising their level of ambition. You can't come in and say, we want you to put a billboard on I-95 saying, I heart build back better. That's kind of scary to some companies. But what can they do? Will they call their lawmakers privately, individually and say, This is why these investments are important for a business. I want you to know that because businesses are constituents, just like individuals are, and lawmakers have a responsibility to listen to them. And thinking about, you know, if you start there, how can you grow the relationship? And I think the other thing that I've learned is it's important to play the short game and the long game at the same time. We don't have time to lose on climate. For example, there are things moving this year that we need to get done. You know, I've mentioned the clean energy tax credit several times because I think they'll be transformational. There are new medium and heavy duty truck standards that are going to be extremely important, not just to reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but also health harming pollutants, NOx and particulates and VOCs that cause asthma and ground level ozone and exacerbate all kinds of health problems. There are rules coming down the pike on methane that are going to be extremely important. And what's gotten a lot of attention lately is the SEC's climate risk disclosure rule. And that is not climate policy. It is financial regulation. And yet it's an important piece of the puzzle. Without it, investors won't have the information they need to make good decisions about, is this company making a, managing its climate risk? Is it moving to the clean energy economy? You know, ultimately, capital needs to flow to support the clean energy transition. And disclosure is a necessary first step for that. Are you working with companies to develop a plan on how to lobby in favor of tougher disclosure requirements, especially as they relate to climate? So on that one, we have been working with both companies and investors, two really important audiences, to make sure they're informed of what the proposed rule says, and they know how to comment. 
for the SEC rule, the most important audience is investors because that's who it's for. That is the customer. And that's who's been asking the SEC to bring climate risk disclosure level with other forms of risk disclosure that the SEC already requires. We know and expect that investors will be broadly supportive of the proposed rule. Companies are sort of next in line and in importance because they're the regulated entity. They're the ones who have to respond. We've been doing a lot of outreach along with Ceres and other NGOs to make sure that companies understand what's in this proposed rule and how it builds on existing reporting frameworks, whether it's CDP or Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. And all it's doing is it's making that mandatory and leveling the playing field across the economy. So it sounds like you have sort of two strategies going on at the same time with regard to who you work with and why. On the one hand, there are those that come to you from your colleagues in other areas of EDF plus biz who've been supporting perhaps their operational or supply chain area, and you're complementing that work by saying, hey, let's make sure we think through the policy aspects as well. But then there's another part where it sounds like you have your thumb on the pulse of all the different policies that are being discussed in Washington, whether it's transportation or electricity or methane or SEC. And with that policy in mind, you're like, who should I go talk to? Who should I bring into this conversation and get their voices either on talking about legislation or talking about lawsuits? Is that right? That's exactly right, Mike. I'd say as environmental advocates, we start with the tons. Where do you get the maximum amount of reduction of greenhouse gas emissions? Then it's working back. Okay, then we need policies to dial down emissions and dial up the transition in the marketplace. In the case of transportation and power, the clean energy investments in Congress are dialing up the incentives to accelerate the transformation Whereas the regulations on emissions from vehicles that happens through EPA and Department of Transportation, that's dialing down the emissions. So yes, we start the tons, then what are the policies that will deliver the tons, then who do we need on board to get those policies done? And at the same time, what can we do with the relationships that we already have? Great. There's been lots of discussion about how the war in Ukraine with Russia has put new pressures on natural gas and new pressures on oil. Is that an area that you're focusing on in terms of policy advocacy? Absolutely. And, you know, we can't ignore that this conversation is happening at a time of twin crises, the war in Ukraine and worsening impacts of climate change. I was just reading Joel McCower's newsletter earlier this week about spontaneous combustion of landfills in India. It's just atrocious to think about. And people living in 120 degree heat, these are are just tremendous crises that we're facing with colossal human costs, let alone economic costs. And both of them are tied to our dependence on fossil fuel. And that's another reason why we need to accelerate the transition to clean energy so that we become less vulnerable to these price spikes driven by geopolitical conflict, and regain control of our energy future. Great. Are there other current projects you want to share with us? I think I would just emphasize the collaboration that exists among NGOs in this space. If your listeners go to AAAClimateLeadership.org, 
They can read all about what the AAA framework is about, what the top climate policy priorities are, and who is involved. And this is basically every leading environmental organization that works with business. And that's been really powerful to have that unified message and coordinated activity. And we're starting to see collaboration among companies as well, you know, companies involved in the Transform to Net Zero initiative or the Business Alliance to Scale Climate Solutions, um, both of which EDF was involved in helping to bring about. I think the other thing I would want to mention is you can expect to see more accountability for companies on their climate lobbying, not just from NGOs like EDF or groups like Influence Map, but from investors. Investors are taking those net zero commitments very seriously and asking companies on a much more routine basis, all right, what is your, is your lobbying consistent with your climate goals? Is your lobby Paris aligned? What are you doing to bring your lobbying in alignment with Paris goals? What traders associations are you a part of? So expect that accountability to intensify. And I think you're also seeing more pressure from other stakeholders that companies care about, including customers and employees. And so, you know, I would just say to your listeners, as you think about which are the companies you want to go to work for, whatever you do in your career, you could be in marketing, you could be in logistics, you could be in finance, but if you care about climate, make sure you're working for a company that puts its lobbying muscle behind its mouth on climate. And how would they know that? I think they can ask the government affairs staff. They can look at the company's lobbying reports. They can look at the company's trade association memberships. They can look at the company's social responsibility and corporate advocacy pages. You know, another great organization is called Climate Voice, led by Bill Weil, formerly climate czar at, at Facebook and Google. He is all about engaging employees because that's something companies care about is their talent. Well, this has been a really interesting tour of EDF plus biz in particular on their corporate advocacy on climate policy. I wonder if we can turn toward some of our final questions where we ask you for advice. Many of our listeners are considering figuring out how to dedicate their career to business and climate change. And we often ask our guests for advice on the road they should take or resources they should pursue. So what are your thoughts on that? Uh, two words, climate core. If you are a student between your first and second year or second and third year of a dual degree program, or even right after business school, I would really encourage you to apply to climate core. It's a tremendous experience. And the alumni network is now over a thousand committed professionals that are doing something related to climate or energy in their careers. That's a great way to learn the issues, apply the issues, and get some of those really concrete bullet points on your resume about what you did to advance a company's climate agenda, save money, save energy, etc. Some other organizations you could consider getting involved in, I mentioned Climate Voice. EDF also has an advocacy organization for younger people called Defend Our Future. So that's a great way to get involved in doing some of your own advocacy. There are ways to get informed, like Climate Reality Project. I mean, there are lots of different organizations that kind of can take you for a few weeks or, or months at a time, and you can get to really learn the issues. Because I think this is such a big challenge, and we have so little time to make wholesale transformations to our economy and our industrial system. And we really need all hands on deck. 
And I think the final thing I'd say is it doesn't matter where you end up in your organization. If your main talent is finance or management or logistics or HR, you can still bring a climate lens and an equity lens to everything you do and add value that way. So don't feel like you have to be in some particular department. This is really every skill set. It's like it's a giant orchestra and we need every instrument playing. Terrific. Well, Victoria, thank you so much for your advice and thank you so much for sharing the story of EDF plus biz and your journey there. It's really interesting work. It's been a pleasure, Mike. Thank you so much for having me. That was Victoria Mills, Managing Director at Environmental Defense Fund. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, share with your friends, and don't forget to rate and review. For show notes, head over to climaterising.org or click on the link in the podcast information. You've been listening to Climate Rising. I'm your host, Mike Toffel. Kate Zarenner is our producer, and Craig McDonald is our audio engineer. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Climate Rising. See you then.